Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. Where is God? Many are asking where God is during this challenging time. I know this in part because of a Pew Research study that had a couple of interesting findings about folks' relationship with religion at this time. First, perhaps unsurprisingly, the study found that the majority of those who already pray daily have been praying about the outbreak. Second, however, the study found that nearly one in seven of those who say they seldom or never pray and almost one in four of those who say they do not belong to any religion have been praying during the outbreak. And that was about two weeks ago. And I don't know about you, but so much has changed in the last two weeks that I can barely remember what I was doing two weeks ago. So I imagine that the numbers must be much higher now. And in fact, according to a more recent report, the number of Google searches for prayer has doubled for every 80,000 cases of coronavirus. And given that there are now well over a million people with confirmed coronavirus throughout the world, that means that for every one person who was searching for prayer before the outbreak, there are now about 3,000 people searching for prayer for each of those people. And if you're one of those people who was first searching for prayer in the last few weeks and are joining us today, I want to send you a special welcome. I want to tell you that we're so happy that you're joining us today. So please reach out to us by sending us a message through our webpage or our Facebook page. I'll return your message and I'll be very happy to talk to you wherever you may be in your life journey right now. And I do hope that if you're joining us for the first time, that you'll join us as we journey over the next couple of weeks towards the most important day of the year to us as Christians, Easter, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of you who have joined us before, you'll notice that something has changed. Typically, you see an array of icons here in the prayer corner. But today, those icons are covered up They're covered up with a purple veil. Last night, before Vespers, uh, we traditionally at evening prayer, Vespers evening prayer, all the crucifixes and images were veiled with violet. Traditionally, from this point, two Sundays before Easter, which is called Passion Sunday, the crucifixes and images in the church are covered. We call this mini-season of the church year Passion Tide. The crucifixes, those are the images of our crucified Lord on the cross, stay covered until the end of the celebration of the Lord's Passion on Good Friday. And the rest of the icons stay veiled until the Gloria of Easter Vigil. The crosses are veiled in part because of St. John's Gospel we read today. It concluded with Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The icons, the depictions of the saints, as our church teaches, are only meaningful in that they point to Christ. So if Christ is hidden, then our other images must necessarily be hidden. On Good Friday, we will first unveil the crucifixes to remind us that we're at that moment, at the nadir of our church year, the rock bottom. Because on that night, we see God, who is so high in the heavens, has humbled himself to become a man for us and die for us 
ultimately the consequence of our actions as mankind. In order, though, to save us through death, we won't stay at that bottom point very long. In just three days, the saints will continue to be hidden, but at the Easter vigil, when the light of the resurrection is lit, who is none other than Christ, they will be unveiled again, because they will then be illumined as he illumines all of us. Other actions in the season of Passion Tide accompany this veiling to emphasize it. For example, we leave out the minor doxology, that's the glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, in certain places. So if you feel a little confused, you think, well, where was that for the next couple of weeks? It's normal. And we'll try to remind you of some special rules for this time of the year, best we can. Sometimes they even prove challenging for us who do this every year to remember them. So don't worry. But they keep us mindful of the uniqueness of this time in the church year. So where is God? I saw a Facebook meme that I had to try my hardest not to respond to. Because I know how rarely any good comes of responding to people on Facebook, especially a hostile crowd. But let me tell you about it. It showed Pope Francis on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire being asked, what is God's role in the COVID-19 outbreak? And the answers were, A, unaware it's happening. B, aware but unwilling to stop it. C, aware but uh, unwilling, un, unwilling to stop it. And one is unwilling to stop it, the other is unable to stop it. I may have said the opposite there. And D, deliberately caused it. So what do you think the answer is? Well, let's discuss that for a moment. Because I'm sure that's a question a lot of people are asking, maybe even some of you. I mean, how can God be there and all this be happening? And I want to be sure that you have an answer to those who may ask you around the dinner table, virtually, of course, in the coming weeks. First, and perhaps this is the most important point, the right answer isn't on the board. So be careful when you're given a closed set of choices. At a minimum, it's probably a blend between a couple of them. But let me share. So what do we as Orthodox Christians have an answer? What answer do we have for what I, I think is a relatively fair question? Well, I can definitely cross off a couple of answers. First, God is certainly aware of what's going on, and he doesn't like it. And let's be clear, D is definitely wrong also, that God deliberately caused this. I want to be absolutely clear. God is not the source of suffering and evil in our world. Instead, the source of those things is the devil, his minions, and our sin, which we choose when we choose our way rather than God's way. And when we did that, we broke creation. We broke that at the fall, and we continue breaking it to this very day. But thanks be to God, he came running after us like one of us would when our child gets hurt after doing something stupid that they don't necessarily fully recognize the consequences of. Through Jesus, God has successfully fixed that brokenness in an eternal way, but we're still living through it, all playing out in our time and our place. So with those two answers out of the way, what's left? Well, I do think this is a little bit of a blend between B and C, and it goes beyond either of those answers, which is neither quite right. And so let's walk through our understanding of suffering as Christians. First, God gave us free will. 
Why did he do that? Well, God gave us free will because love requires it. God didn't want us to be robots. He wanted us to be capable of love as he is love. We are created in his image. In giving us, though, free, free will, God gave up some of his power. Isn't that remarkable? God can't act in a way that violates our free will because he chose to give us our free will. So when people say God is omnipotent, it's true. He just chose that power to use his power to give some of his power away, which isn't in some way that remarkable. After all, he gave up his power to save us too. He's willing to suffer with us. And again, we had to have that free will in order to love. You can't make someone love you. He understood the consequences. And yes, we have chosen to use that will for both good and unfortunately evil. But without it, we can't be good because we, we would be incapable of love. And love is necessary for good. God has apparently decided that on balance, that was all worth it. And furthermore, God's designed it in such a way that, let's call it under normal circumstances, including this outbreak, our actions are required to help stop this outbreak. We as Orthodox Christians believe we are co-workers with God. We are responsible for working with him to repair this mess. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. Of course, God could have chosen to do it without us, but he never wanted to. And he gave us our free will right from the beginning. Now, so could God maybe stop this miraculously? Well, in some ways, yes. But again, God doesn't go around healing people who haven't turned to him in faith. We have, again, to participate. We see this throughout all the miracles in the Bible. Jesus heals people who come to him with faith. And even then, we do believe that God sometimes doesn't always necessarily help us. Sometimes we have to recognize that we're asking for a cookie when a carrot is what we need. And God knows better. And in that sense, God sometimes allows evil things to continue in order to help chastise us and bring us to repentance. Does that sound bad? Isn't that what a good parent does? Sometimes give their children the natural consequences of their actions? How much better a father is our God than we? Unless you still have your doubts, pay attention during church the next couple of weeks. Hear the gospel. What has God done by permitting evil? He saved the world by freely accepting crucifixion and death at our sinful hands. Brothers and sisters, we are strong in our weakness. And finally, we have nothing at all to fear from this virus anyway, because God has overcome death and the grave. All glory, laud, and honor to our good and loving God. But maybe you're still feeling like God is doing a little more social distancing from us than you like. Perhaps you feel he's missing in your life. Ever doubt that God exists because he feels so distant? Ever feel like you could ask, hey God, where are you? Or when you catch a glimpse of him, where have you been? I'm here to tell you that doubts are a natural part of our Christian journey. For example, we see St. Joseph in many renditions of the icon of the nativity sitting outside the cave with a disturbed look on his face head resting on his hand with a figure talking to him representing the devil. I don't think Jesus, I don't think Joseph, I mean, joined the caroling singing, what child is this, but instead asking, whose child is this? 
The church's hymns in the Vespers of the Four Feasts of the Nativity of Christ mention this struggle specifically. It says that Joseph, when he beheld the greatness of this wonder, thought that he saw a mortal wrapped as a babe in swaddling clothes. But from all that came to pass, he understood that it was the true God who grants the world great mercy. From the Bible in three weeks, on the very first Sunday after Easter, we will be discussing how St. Thomas's doubts gives, gives us a blessing, all of us who believe yet have not seen. So I'm here to tell you that we all have doubts, that even the saints had doubts, but we have to overcome them as they did. And today's Passion Sunday Gospel has much to teach us about these moments that seem to challenge our faith. The passage rather abruptly opens on the line, which of you convicts me, that's Jesus, of sin. Those lectionary readings presume the hearers can fill in the context, so let me help the rest of us all here. The discourse actually starts back on verse 31, and I think this is really, really important. It starts with the words, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him. These weren't doubters, at least at first. In fact, these are those who, like you and me, believe in him. Next, Jesus says to these believers, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. As Christians, we've heard those words so much, they're almost a creed. And something we say to others, and even non-Christians say the truth shall set you free. How many of them know they're quoting Jesus when they say that? But out of context, we lose that these very words of Christ led his believers to doubt him severely because they answer him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have been in bondage. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Here we see that it's often Jesus's own words that will lead to doubt. In fact, if we're not experiencing doubts, we're likely missing something critical in the gospel message. The real Christian life is a struggle, whether we live in relative peace, as we are lucky to do in this country, or whether we're under the constant threat of persecution and martyrdom. If the struggle of the Christian life is not leading to at least some doubt that you're doing the right thing, it might be because... Um, you're not experiencing the genuine, hard Christian life, then you may, you may be only taking the hope and joy part of the message without the clear message of our Lord that all those, all those who follow him will, will be persecuted. Next, Jesus responds in the, in the gospel by saying something very profound. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I love this statement. It's a great statement of God's love and mercy to us. We all sin. Therefore, we can either be slaves to sin or sons of sin. And Jesus reminds us that if we're slaves, we're not slaves of our own will. Slaves, slaves are under a master, and one day they can be made free. And in fact, that's what Jesus says. He himself is the one that redeems and makes us free from our slavery to sin. So let's not be sons of sin. And if we're not, we're going to be made free. We're going to be made free by being sons of God, by abiding in Jesus. Yet Jesus tells his listeners that they are not really Abraham's descendants, even though they say they are, because they don't do the works of Abraham, who longed for Christ, who had faith in things to come. Instead, Jesus says these very Jews who believe in him seek to kill him because of what he is saying. Jesus implies that they do the deeds of their father, by which he means the devil, 
By now, the crowd's getting pretty angry. I hope you can hear the tension rising in their voices when you read this passage. Here we are. We believe in you. We want to learn from you. And now you're telling us that we're the sons of the devil? What are you doing? No, we're not the sons of the devil. They tell him we have one Father, God. And Jesus says again that if they were really sons of God, then they would believe in him. And emphasizing my point that it's often God's truth that leads to doubt, Jesus himself says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Wow. And here our lectionary passage starts. With these believing Jews essentially working themselves into a frenzy as Jesus makes repeated claims to be God, ending with Jesus saying in a very clear claim of divinity, most assuredly, before Abraham was, I am. If you don't know I am in this passage is a blasphemy, it is. because And it would, well, it would be if it weren't true, because that is God's name. I am. I am who I am. Remember, God tells Moses in the burning bush. God is existence. So at that point, those, well, uh, that's a long story. So at that point, those who believed in him pick up stones to kill him for this perceived blasphemy. So, my first major point about doubts is that we all have them. The second is that if we don't have doubts, then it's unlikely we've truly internalized the gospel because it's so radical, so different than our expectations, that it should be natural to doubt the way to strength is through weakness as manifested in Jesus. However, while doubt is categorically not sin, it can become one if we move from doubt to disbelief or worse to sowing disbelief among others. How shall we prevent our doubts from ever becoming sin? Well, let me relate a story from Mother Teresa's life. In 1975, John Cannaval, a Jesuit philosopher, went to work for three months with Mother Teresa uh, in her house of dying in Calcutta. And he was searching for an answer to some spiritual struggles that he was experiencing. And on his very first morning there, he met Mother Teresa and he said, uh, and she asked him, what can I do for you? And Cannaval said, uh, asked her to pray for him. And Mother Teresa said, well, what do you want me to pray for? He answered with a request uh, that was the very reason he had traveled thousands of miles to India to, to meet her. Pray that I have clarity. But Mother Teresa said firmly, no, I won't do that. And when he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. When Cannaval said, you always seem to have clarity, Mother Teresa laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Trust. We all have doubts. Doubts are part of the journey to faith, and trust is the nourishment that sustains us on that journey. Trust is the foundation of faith. In God, we trust the motto of the United States, which according to the courts is not a violation of the First Amendment because it's quite obvious that the national motto, the courts say, has nothing whatsoever to do with the establishment of religion and that its only use is for patriotic patriotic or ceremonial character. Well, I suggest today that you take up that motto as your own with complete acceptance of its religious meaning that it should have for you as a Christian. And God, I trust because it is only by that trust that uh, we can truly have faith. It's only through trust that I can have faith because trust is the only thing that will allow me to give myself fully to God. If I do not have complete and total trust in God, then I'm still holding on to a false God. 
me, myself, is the false God I'm holding on to. If I don't let go and give myself completely to God, then I made myself an idol for myself. Remember back before Lent when I urged you to carry out the fast as it was prescribed and to be obedient? Obedience is a kind of trust. And Lent calls us to that trust. By fasting, we remind ourselves that we can trust God to provide for us. By prayer, we trust that God hears us, even if he doesn't always answer loudly and clearly. By almsgiving, we trust that we really don't need that stuff that we're giving away and that we can rely on God and we can trust our neighbor as well as God to make better use of it than we ever could. If we feel that God is distant from us, he's not. The veil over these icons reminds us that he is right here, even if we can't see him. The veils remind us that we are constantly with a great cloud of witnesses surrounding and supporting us, even if we feel like we can't see them. All we need to do to see him again in all his glory is to pull those veils away and put our complete trust in him. That's how we'll pull those veils away. So, We can trust God, even now in our darkness. We see that instead of chastising Thomas for his doubts, that Christ gives Thomas exactly what he needs to believe. Jesus comes to Thomas and offers him the opportunity to touch his wounds because he knows that's what Thomas needs. If we trust in God, we will ultimately receive what we need to overcome any doubts we may have. And finally, as we enter Passion Tide, Let us look at Jesus' own life, as we always should be doing, for the greatest example of trust. Here in the next two weeks, we will journey with Jesus, who is urgently aware that he will soon be killed. We will journey with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, where even Jesus had his doubts, where Jesus himself prays to the Father, asking him if it be possible to let this cup pass from him. Yet despite this wish for a way out, what does Jesus do? He trusts completely in his Father, gives up his own doubts, his own way of wishing there was a better way. He gives up those doubts by relinquishing his own will, saying, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do the same. Respect your doubts. They are often a clue that you're on the real path, not some fake version that so many like to put in front of us. And say, God In you, I trust. I trust not in myself, but only in you. When God is in control, everything is possible. Trust him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.